Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week I met Max Brooks, a novelist who blends monstrosity and horror with forensic realism to explore human responses to crises and disasters. His novel World War Z was an international bestseller and made into a movie starring Brad Pitt. And his new novel, Devolution, anticipates our current climate with an exploration of how we cope in extreme isolation. Whether or not you're a fan of the horror genre, Max's fiction offers incredibly rich insight into the nature of disaster response and, in the midst of the global pandemic, has earned him a reputation for uncanny prescience and foresight. Here's the interview. Max, you're an expert in disasters and in crises whose thoughts on the subject are taken extremely seriously at the highest echelons of American power. You've lectured at West Point, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs has read and discussed your books, you've lectured to FEMA and at the Naval War College, but the threats you describe in your books aren't exactly conventional. You're a novelist, and your characters face off against horror movie monsters. So in your bestseller, World War Z, it's zombies. In your new novel, Devolution, it's Bigfoot. So before we get into the more realistic aspects of your fiction, I want to know what draws you to the horror genre. What horror stories and monstrous myths did you love growing up? And how did you settle on these two monstrous metaphors for more realistic catastrophes? Well, I'd like to say that it it was some sort of intellectual genius. uh, But the truth is, both Bigfoot and zombies are childhood fears. Right. And so what I did was take a childhood fear and try to combat it with very grown-up solutions. and. From there, I took the notion of using fictional threats to try and teach factual solutions to problems. And with, uh, with zombies and with Bigfoot, do you have specific kinds of crises in mind that you use them as analogies for? Yeah, with, with zombies, uh, I'm pretty much discussing pandemics, but it could be sort of any kind of mega global disaster. It could be a war, it could be natural, uh, it could be any of them. But really, for me, the, the zombie pandemic, the zombie plague, is a great way of discussing how systems break down uh, on, on, a, on a large scale, which is one of the reasons I wrote World War Z, was because I was sick and tired of seeing zombie stories portrayed with small groups of people. It was like trying to learn about World War II by just watching Saving Private Ryan. Right, and the classic, the classic zombie story is a bunch of guys in a house and they're under siege and there's almost a sense of it's us against the world. Um, it's a kind of libertarian survivalist mentality. But World War Z is nothing like that, is it? No, no because when you break down the idea of a zombie plague, assuming it was real, uh, you realize that most people would die without ever having seen a zombie. They would die of dehydration, malnutrition, infection, conventional disease, which is actually what happens in real conflict. If you break down the casualty rates of a real war, most people do not die by enemy fire. Right, right, right. 
And of course, one of the things that's most discussed in the pandemic is all of the excess deaths, as they're sometimes called, that are not from COVID, but are from all of the other things that have happened, the strain on health services and so on. Yeah, and and this is what I I think had to be really brought to the forefront in the idea, certainly in the United States, of flattening the curve. Because the notion, Mm -hmm. uh, if, if too many people got sick too quickly, even if they ended up surviving, they would take up valuable hospital space that would be needed by people who were dying of other accidents, injuries, ailments. It's what the military calls second and third order effects. And you take your monsters extremely seriously, don't you? I mean, a number of your contemporaries, I'm thinking of Nick Frost and Simon Pegg from this country, for example, or your father, Mel Brooks, in the horror movie Young Frankenstein, use monsters uh, for comedic purposes. They're just there to satirize. But um, although people initially trying to present you in the same light as your father early in your career, that's not really what you're interested in, is it? No, that, uh, that was a few stumbling blocks early on. People were sort of trying to position me as Mel Brooks Jr. Uh, and that led to some brutal disappointments on the part of the world. But once I sort of was able to take the reins of my own career and market myself authentically, people knew what they were getting into. And we haven't had any trouble since then. Um, And so you're the son of Mel Brooks, as I just mentioned, also Anne Bancroft. So your household was incredibly creative and accomplished growing up. Um, Tell us a bit about that. What did you learn from your parents about the craft of storytelling? Well, it it was creative, but I I, I think there's a, a huge misconception of sort of what it was like. I think there's this notion that somehow we lived this amazing, glamorous Hollywood life. And the truth is, we were immigrants to this new land of Los Angeles as were most celebrities from that genre, that generation of, of comedians, actors, directors. And when I think back to my father and mother having dinner with Carl Reiner, Dom DeLuise, Gene Wilder, Alan Alda, uh, they really were just immigrants figuring out where to find a dentist and how to get their car serviced. Uh, I grew up with um, the learning disability dyslexia. So my mother would search out and try to find the right school for me and accommodation. So it really was about sort of making a life in this one horse town called Hollywood. Right. I mean, you're, you're not in any way the epitome of a spoiled Hollywood brat. And when I was reading World War Z, one of the scenes I thought was most uh, entertaining is when the smug celebrities are holed up in a house and they're broadcasting their situation to the wider world as entertainment. And they're overrun by a mob who want to take that safe and secure living space for themselves. <laughs> well, you know, that actually comes from my parents. That comes from the fact that I grew up with depression era parents. Right. And they had a very simple philosophy, which is if you flaunt something that other people want, someone is going to try to take it from you the kind of thing where when I was a little boy, I got out my wallet in a store and I started counting the money in it. My mother smacked my hand saying, don't ever count the money in public. And my father always told me, it's okay to make a fortune in America, but don't drive that fortune past people who were starving. And part of that was mor- you know, moral, morality, but part of it was also survival, which is if you flaunt it, someone will try to take it. Right. And I mean, I have noticed in both devolution and World War Z, people who are rich and entitled are punished not just by people who are not rich and entitled, but simply for lacking in everyday practical skills. There's a celebration of blue collar workers in both of your books. 
And it's echoed, I think, in some ways in the current crisis. So, um, for example, in the UK, we have a weekly round of applause for care workers who are out on the front lines fighting the pandemic while the rest of us are sequestered at home. Where, where does that admiration for, for blue collar work and practical skills come from? I mean, obviously, you're a writer. You sit at your desk all day using your imagination. Well, I, I, I use my imagination to discover and to research, uh, which, as you know, with, with all my books, they're massively researched. I spend between uh, every hour I spend writing, I spend 10 to 100 hours researching. And what I have learned uh, is that as how civilization works. How do we stay alive? How do we get up every day and make it through the day? And the reason we make it through the day is because of the people around us all specializing in the boring grind of jobs that keep the lights on and the water running and the water clean and keep the roads paved. And when, we, when horrible diseased feces comes out of our bodies, it is flushed away and, and treated. And these are all people who do not get celebrity treatment. And yet they are the reason we are not living in a Monty Python medieval world. Right. And they're the heroes of your fiction, the real heroes. Well, they are the people that keep us alive. And, and you, the history of the human race is that civilizations that celebrate that, the boring drudge work, the Roman engineer who builds the aqueduct, the Chinese night soil man, these are the people that raise up a civilization as opposed to uh, the glamorous folk who they provide a service, but when it comes down to it, cannot feed themselves. Right. Do you, Max, have any practical skills? Yes. Uh, I've had to learn. I've had to learn very quickly. Um, in this pandemic, I've been very lucky that I live in a house and not an apartment. I'm very lucky that I live in Southern California and not in New York. Uh, my mother was a gardener. My mother always kept a garden. She was descended from Italian peasants. So she taught me how. And so in order to keep my family from going to the grocery store, I kept a vegetable garden throughout this pandemic, and I still do, uh, so I could keep us in fresh leafy greens. And that happens in devolution. That was very important. Devolution is different than World War Z in that World War Z is much more of a broad look, the big picture of how disasters happen. Devolution is much more personal, much more intimate, where my characters have no tools, no skills. They're in a little eco-community in Mount Rainier, and they're cut off by an eruption, a volcanic eruption. And they have to survive. Winter is coming. And so in some ways, I've been living that here. Even just little things. Uh, there's a scene in Devolution where a character is going to brush uh, volcanic ash off the solar panels. And his wife says, if you fall off the roof and break your ankle, you can't go to the hospital. And you become a taker. Instead of contributing to us, you take time and supplies away. Same thing happened to us. It was raining. I was going to clean out the gutters. My wife said, don't you dare. I mean, your characters in, um, in Devolution, they love technology. They live in uh, an eco-village, which in normal times is almost a utopia. It's wonderful. Technology has provided them everything they need. But the moment the volcanic eruption cuts them off from the rest of civilization, none of that stuff is useful anymore. No, and this is, this is one of the messages I was trying to get through in, in Devolution is that we are rushing headlong to construct a society based on comfort and not on resilience. Uh, a lot of this knowledge comes from the two think tanks that I'm part of and the tech conferences that I've attended. 
uh, and seeing that all these wonderful new technologies, which I support wholeheartedly, by the way, have no backups. They have no redundancy. Little things like driverless cars. Everyone's rushing to put driverless cars on the street, but no one is building a, a manual kill switch because they don't understand that, number one, anything that's networked can be hacked, and number two, the number one terror tool in the world today is driving a car into a crowd. So our tech companies are right now rushing to put millions of guided missiles on our roads. All right, we're, we're searching for efficiency at the expense of safety. We are, and, and we, we see this. We saw a little hiccup in the 1990s when Amazon just started, uh, and the internet just started, and people started ordering Christmas toys, and they didn't realize the physical toys still had to be delivered somewhere. And so in America, Christmas Eve, all these parents were rushing around to the stores trying to buy stuff. And it was funny and cute, but we didn't take a lesson from that. And we see that now with the pandemic, certainly in the United States, people are trying to order their food fresh direct. And they're not understanding that you still need physical people and logistics and vehicles that need fuel and roads. And if we don't maintain all that, it doesn't matter whether you click a button or not. Your novels are reminding us through fiction that supply chains exist. Well, that, this is what, this is the core of, of why I write the way I write. Because if you try to lecture people on these big issues, these big scary issues, you will either scare them away or you will put them to sleep or you will get their, their anger up, their defensiveness. This is all called the ego defense mechanism. And we all have it. It's a way of protecting our sanity. How do you circumvent that? How do you educate with, without repelling? So the best way I have found is to do it through fiction. Tell the story you need to tell. Talk about supply chains and governments and the military. But present a fictional threat. Zombies, Bigfoot, whatever. And that's just enough of a psychological condom to give people a chance to listen. So you've got some listeners tuning into this podcast now, I hope. Uh, tell us directly, what practical skills, multi-purpose practical skills, do you recommend for people to develop to cope with disasters? Well, I don't think we all need to become experts at everything. You can't. That's not how civilization works. But you do need to at least have a basic knowledge of how to maintain what is around you. If you're, if you're trapped in a pandemic, as we all are, you should know how to fix your toilet. Uh, you should know how to change a light bulb. You should know how everything works in your house. Uh, so that way, if it's not working, maybe you don't need to call a professional. Just little things like that. You should know how to cook. You should know how to clean. You should know how to do all the basic things that our grandparents used to do. And that's not crazo prepping survivalism that's just taking care of yourself so let's talk about this this crisis that we're in were you prepared for covid when did you first realize that things were going to become as serious as they have i i knew that things were going to happen uh a long time ago uh well it seems like a, a lifetime ago back in january when i was recovering from the flu i got an uh, a text from Admiral Wisecup, who used to be the president of the United States Naval War College, who asked me if I knew what was happening in China, and I didn't, and he sent me some articles. So I started looking at it, and it was plain as day that we were in a lot of trouble. 
because COVID had the, the danger, the bullet of going under the radar. A two-week non-symptomatic incubation period. Well, that allows it to go all over the world. So when I heard about certain countries putting in uh, temperature checks at airports, I knew that was, that was not going to work. Uh, there needed to be an all-hands-on-deck tracing program. We weren't doing that. Something very frightening about the fact that you, a novelist, yeah. <laughs> knew that it wasn't going to work and the professionals were still doing Well, th it. this is the problem. Through, through my work, uh, through also my think tank work at uh, the Brent Scowcroft Center and also the Modern War Institute at West Point, I have also studied the, certainly the United States disaster plans. This is what's been so infuriating is that the United States does actually have a master disaster plan for something like this. It's called the National Response Framework. And I've seen it in action. I've witnessed war games on American soil for something like this. So when you hear our politicians say, well, we were caught unaware, that's just a lie. We were ready, we were prepared, and we didn't pull the trigger on it. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. It's very, um, it's very, it struck me as very prescient when I was reading World War Z that the zombie pandemic begins in China and the Chinese government covers it up. The physicians who know about it are silenced. And then the novel was banned in China. And that here we are. Um, so how did you develop that hypothesis? Because it seems to me that you were so uncannily accurate that I imagine you as a kind of modern day Cassandra kind of, you say everyone thinks you're crazy until history proves you to be correct. I, I was not trying to predict the future. I was just looking back on the past because pandemics tend to come in very predictable cycles. And when I was writing World War Z, I just used SARS. It was a very simple model because in order for a pandemic to get out of control, you need a holy trinity. You need a massive population. You need a top of the line transportation network to allow the plague to spread quickly. But the third critical piece of the puzzle is you need a government that's willing to suppress the truth. That's why my zombie play could not have started in India or Mexico, someplace like that, because one intrepid reporter would blow it right out of the water. You needed a government that was willing to shut everything down, which China did with SARS and which they did again this time around. So while we in the West are ooing and aahing over China's ability to build hospitals overnight, they wouldn't have had to do that if they had just had a free and open press. Back in March, uh, you made a video about the coronavirus with your dad, and it went, forgive me for using the pun, but it's unavoidable, viral. So tell me about how that came about. This goes back to, to everything I write about, is education. How do you educate people? How do you reach people, especially in a democratic society where, where the people are the power? Well, 
How do you tell them about this pandemic? You make it personal. You just boil it down to a father and a son. And it doesn't hurt also to make it funny. You know, science fiction and horror are great teaching tools, but humor is also a great one. I learned more about life from comedians than I ever did from college professors. So you make it funny, you make it personal, you talk about me, my dad, I don't want to infect him, he's going to infect Carl Reiner, infecting Dick Van Dyke. And then before you know it, people understand what this plague is really about. And just by the way, I'm not the first person to do this. This is what we used to do in times like the Second World War, when the government needed the support of the population. Right. And did you feel after doing that tweet that you were competing against your government in a way? I'm thinking of President Trump tweeting his support to the anti-quarantine, anti-lockdown protesters and aggravating those who are trying to encourage social distancing and all the other measures that help fight the virus. Yes. I mean, quite frankly, I'm not surprised at how my country has dealt with this plague. Uh, Because, first of all, we have the most incompetent uh, and dangerous captain of our ship of state in American history. But the the ship has had mechanical problems for some time. We've been dismantling our redundancies and our safety nets for quite a while. Uh, I get that. I don't know what your excuse is. You have a national health service. (laughs) You still have, at least from an outsider's point of view, a functioning government. Uh, I I would have expected the Europeans and the British to be light years ahead of the Americans. So I am shocked at how global the cock-up has been. Right. In World War Z, you don't just depict the American government not responding well to the zombie pandemic, do you? You you cross the globe. It's an oral history. And the character of Max, the journalist, interviews survivors of the plague from countries across the entire world. And each country responds differently in a way that's in some way related to the real historical responses of that nation to crisis. Yes, yes. And how have different global governments in this real pandemic met or differed from your expectations? Are there those who've done better than you projected them to do in the novel? Yes. Uh, some, sometimes I, I hit the mark. I mean, Israel has responded shockingly and terrifyingly how I thought they would. Uh, they locked down early. They did everything right. The ultra-Orthodox tried to screw it up just like they did in the novel. And they're real, in Israel, there really was civil strife between uh, secular Jews and the, the religious, the very religious, uh, just like in my novel. Uh, China behaved exactly like they did in the novel, trying to cover it up initially and letting it go all around the world. The United States, of course, not believing in science, divided, arrogant, isolationist. The one country I think I got spectacularly wrong is Taiwan. Because when I wrote World War Z, China and Taiwan were having a rapprochement. They were starting to come together. So I assumed that the virus would just spread to Taiwan because it was being integrated into China. That has changed. And and relations have soured. And so Taiwan went back to a siege mentality, which ended up saving their lives. Because when this virus started to spread, Taiwan locked it down. So as far as I'm concerned, we are praising the wrong China for its response. 
<laughs> what would you change about the novel now if you were writing, I'm not going to say in hindsight, obviously, but from within the eye of this storm? Well, I mean, the, the world has changed, obviously. Uh, the, the world has changed now in that we have uh, direct misinformation campaigns. We know, for example, the Russians interfered with our elections. We know that the Russians interfered in Brexit. Uh, we know this. We know now that under Putin, this dying bear is trying to reverse the Cold War. When I wrote it, that was not the case. That was uh, much more of the stagnation period where Putin was trying to claw his way back, which I predicted in the novel, but specifically through misinformation campaigns. Uh, I think that, that definitely bears some looking at. There is a piece of misinformation in the novel which struck me as brilliantly uncanny, which is a pharmaceutical company pushing a drug that does nothing against zombies. Yeah. <laughs> and we've seen President Trump endorsing hydrochloroquine, which the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, has suggested has caused more deaths than it prevented. You got that uncannily Well, that's, right. that's nothing new. I mean, this is something that, that we, we have to realize. As much as I would love to take credit and pretend to be some kind of a genius, I'm not. I'm just a historian. All I did for World War Z was take human history and zombify it. There is absolutely nothing in World War Z that has not already happened. People always talk to me about the Battle of Yonkers and how could that have happened? Oh my God, the pressure is to think about it. Well, that's, Yonkers is just Isan Luana in South Africa where the Queen Victoria's army got creamed by the Zulus. There's nothing in my book that doesn't come from human history. I would love to read one day the version of the book that has the zombies taken out, that is just the research that you did to put this thing together. I think that will be a project. Someday what I will do is I will do an annotated copy of World War Z and put every single thing within human history that inspired the zombie events. Let's talk about devolution, because that is a novel about being in isolation, something that we have all gone through for these last few months. How has your experience of isolation measured up against the experience you imagined for your characters? Well, you know, I've always been aware, I think, I think coming from, from Depression-era parents, of how fragile society is and how you need tools and skills to survive when things go wrong. Plus, living in Southern California, I've witnessed fires and floods and earthquakes and riots. Uh, I know that things can, can go wrong. And I also knew that my group of friends around me who uh, are very well-paid and well-educated and very witty and very funny are utterly useless and would die on day one. With devolution, I took the cream of society, the educated, the intellectuals, uh, and I put them in the forest, and they're dependent on technology so they can telecommute to work. It's, it's a wonderful society. It's a great town. You can telecommute, tap on your phone, Amazon delivers your groceries. The house is a smart house. So anything goes wrong, signal, handyman comes in from the town. It's wonderful until Mount Rainier erupts and they are cut off. And this 21st century town becomes a medieval village and they are utterly helpless. They know the works of Marcel Proust and Cicero, and they've listened to every episode of Ira Glass. 
<laughs> but they don't know how to feed themselves. All except one character, which is uh, an immigrant from Yugoslavia. She's an artist in residence. She's seen societies collapse, and she's the one who tries to rally them to dig in and try to not only save themselves from starvation in winter, but from a pack of very large, very hungry Sasquatch creatures that have also been cut off by the eruption. And they need to- One of the mercies of the current pandemic, at least, is that I hope the Brooks family hasn't been attacked by Sasquatch. <laughs> well, I mean, this, this is the funny part, is that in, in devolution, first you have isolation, and you have to deal with just the day-to-day -day life of maintaining your life and not starving. Then you have the physical danger that comes later in the book. Well, that is exactly what's been happening to us, because first we had the pandemic, then we had the protests. Now, I'm very, very happy to say the protests have been peaceful. But I lived through the 1992 Rodney King riots. I did not think that is how it was going to go. What have you learned about yourself from being in isolation? Uh, you know, I've learned to really take better care of my body because I worked myself really hard uh, doing all the things I have to do. And now I have to ice my shoulder every day because of the tendonitis. Uh, so uh, what, I, what I've learned also is, and, and this, this is a very important lesson, is you got to take into consideration the needs of the people that you're with as opposed to the needs that you think they need. And what I mean is, perfect example, uh, the pandemic's happening, lockdown, emergency supplies. Well, I got us enough supplies. We were fine. The problem is I got don't starve supplies. I didn't get quality of life supplies. And so my wife said, well, wait a minute. I don't want to eat, you know, beans and rice and army rations and freeze-dried eggs. <laughs> Uh, and so that's where the gardening came in. The day before the lockdown, she said, oh, wait, I'm going to go to Whole Foods and get leafy greens. I said, no. And that's when I ran to the gardening store and got three dozen seedlings and put them in the ground and have been gardening ever since. I did not consider quality of life. What worries you today? And what are the disasters you can see on the horizon? Oh, God. I mean, there's so many. Take your, take your pick. I, I worry... I worry that this pandemic will go on and we still have not tackled it. This is, this is the problem. This pandemic is a long-term problem until we have a workable vaccine. We need to completely, top to bottom, change society. Completely. Completely change our behavior. We're not doing that. We're, certainly in the United States, we're reopening. People are going back to work. They're going back to the park. They're going back to the, the restaurants. And the, the dead are still stacking up. In about a week, America will have more dead than in World War I. Wow. And that's terrifying. And it would, it would be like if suddenly Winston Churchill said, okay, uh, the Battle of Britain is over, so everybody, we're done. We're done, yeah. the war is over. No, you've got four more years. Yeah. What I also worry about is when a vaccine does come out, the anti-vaxxers will not take the vaccine. I worry that the fear of science, the fear of scientists, the fear of establishment, everything that has been stoked uh, in our societies, both our societies, by the way, I worry that there will be a section that will opt out 
and therefore continually reinfect our people. We're seeing what a vaccine-free world looks like right now. Yes, yes we are. And, and this is one of, one of the reasons that I'm very grateful to have World War II parents because they grew up without any of these things. Uh, one of their dear friends, I won't say his name, but he's a very famous actor. He's my mentor, taught me how to write. He had polio as a child. So I grew up with his stories about polio. Uh, so I have a healthy respect for microbes, but I'm well aware that most people in the Western world today do not. I'll finish by asking you the same question I asked William Gibson when I interviewed him for the podcast way back in February in that very different world. What are you looking forward to in the future? I am, I am looking forward, well, I'm looking forward to many things. I'm looking forward to the Western democracies rediscovering a respect for democracy. Because we have taken it for granted for far too long. When the Cold War ended, we were told this is the end of history. All the great challenges are behind us and we can all come together in a utopian Star Trek world. That has not happened. And we have taken democracy for granted. We have seen it in Brexit, where too many people did not vote. We saw the exact same thing with the election of Donald Trump, where he did not win. We lost because too many people thought, well, they're both the same and I'm just not going to vote. Well, look what happened. And what I look forward to is the average democratic citizen, wherever they are on this world, realizing that democracy is not a right, it is a privilege, it is a flickering flame that must be tended to, and it can go out. It's a beautiful and very bleak note to finish on. Max Brooks, it has been a pleasure having you on the How To Academy podcast. Thank you. Take care of yourself. This week's episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Max Brooks. It was presented and produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, you can find other distinguished guests in our archives, available at howtoacademy.com or wherever you're listening to this. We're also hosting free live streams every night, and you can find the complete programme on our website with forthcoming live streams including Madeleine Albright, Rudger Bregman and Richard Curtis. Thanks for listening.